0: My father, a very practical man, always told me, Don't waste your energy trying to convince someone who really doesn't care. Finding individuals who are genuine, who really care, are the type of individuals that will work with you, that you can partner with, and that together you can succeed with.
1: Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decision's own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right,
2: let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm your host, Deborah Channel. At our recent Net Zero Forum Fall Edition, we hosted our 2023 DEI Impact Awards, which recognize the company-wide efforts of large power users who are advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, all while powering the energy transition. In the next two episodes of our podcast, we'll be celebrating the winners of these DEI Impact Awards and highlighting the work the winners are doing. These awards were sponsored by NRG, and today we'll be hearing from Dr. Charles Marshall, Director of the Energy Branch, Office of Public Housing Programs at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and also Marianella Franklin, Chief Sustainability Officer at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and Jennifer Brunel, Vice President of Talent Development and Diversity at NRG. Let's begin with Dr. Charles Marshall. So Charles Marshall, you are here representing the Energy Branch of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, winner of a team award for our DEI Impact Awards this year. So let's start by having you give us an overview of your position there and what this team does, this Energy Branch
3: team. I am the uh, director for the Energy Branch, which is a part of the Office of Public Housing Programs. What that entails is this is the office that manages programs provides rules, regulations, and even subsidy for public housing across the United States. Some 3,000 plus communities across the United States and the territories. And our focus is on energy. Our focus is on water and programs through the operating fund. The way the public housing is actually subsidized through this program, there's an operating fund and there is a capital fund. And our programs really focus on the operating fund, which deals with utility. So the team works on providing guidance for projects that may be such as performance contracts that take savings to actually build investments into these properties. They also work with rate reduction through utility agreements. And so working with housing authorities on that and also in renewable areas and looking into some new areas as well. So it's kind of a broad kind of sweep or approach. And this is actually the first time that this type of concerted effort has been available in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. It's about three years old and we're getting a lot of growth and we're also getting a lot of expectancy and excitement from our constituency.
2: That's great. And uh, actually feeds in the next question. You know, the nomination for this award talked about four different programs that expand the capacity of the public housing authorities to improve energy, water efficiency, as well as implementing renewables and reducing carbon. It's a lot of heavy lifting there. But how did these programs get started? Did it happen all at once in concert? Was it one after another? What was that like getting it off the ground?
3: Yes, all the above. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. The oldest program is the energy performance contract, which is similar to energy performance contracts that many other state, local entities use where savings through energy conservation measures are used to finance or to pay the debt for the implementation of those measures within a bundled project. And so Housing Authority has been doing that probably about 30 years. So what we're doing is actually overhauling that program. The last guidance for that program was in 2011. So we're in the process of updating that program to make it easier to use and also to provide more opportunities for housing authorities in that area. One of the next ones, which is not as old, but it is a program that's been around a while, which is the Rate Reduction Incentive Program. And what that does is for those housing authorities that take a significant action to reduce their utility rate they are able to keep 50% of that, up to 100% of that for making that effort. Now, the way that they are subsidized, according to federal appropriations law, anytime they have savings, it should go back to treasury. Unless there is some type of law regulation or program that will say, you can use these savings for X, Y, and Z. And so essentially what HUD has done through the EPC program, through the Rate Reduction Incentive Program, the Utility Partnership Program, which I'll talk about in just a second, and the newest one, which rolled out about two years ago, which is the Small Rural Frozen Rolling Base mouthful. That program, which was rolled out, all provide regulatory guidance that allows housing authorities who take these actions to either reduce their utility rates or To reduce their utility consumption through these programs, they're able to keep 50 to 100 percent of those subsidies. And then they can in turn, they have a revenue stream and cash flow to actually pay for them over the life of the term of the contract. So. Housing authorities are very excited about that opportunity.
2: Yeah, the judges were pretty excited about that, too. That was something that a, several of them mentioned, that, you know, the funds are allowed to be a, applied to other energy initiatives. You know, you don't have to give that money back, as you said, to Treasury. Was that built into the program from the start, or is that something you found as you move forward?
3: Oh No, it was intentional, actually built into the programs. And what happens is Congress authorizes through a statute the ability to do the program, and then it is left up to the agency to create the mechanisms, the guidance, the rules, the processes to actually make it happen. And so that's part of, some of those were already in place, but the last few years, we've been working very hard. We're we're doing some online submission things now. We're doing some retooled rules that make it a little bit easier to understand in terms of how to enter these programs. And even how to exit these programs. So that is part of what we're doing as well as making industry aware that these programs exist so that individually with each housing authority, they have more opportunities to actually use these programs to do things.
2: Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I want to stay with the funding opportunities. You know, IRA is on, you know at the top of everybody's list, uh, how to take advantage, how to parse the rules. Is that a big opportunity for HUD as well?
3: Is this, sh- with the Inflation Reduction Act, HUD did receive about $1 billion, which uh, went through what is called multifamily, which is an office that focuses on multifamily housing. Yet generally, the owners are some third party that owns some multifamily units and they're able to lease and get subsidized through HUD. So there are funding front- as well as for Native American housing. Public housing did not receive any. So what we did is we have spent the last year, and we're fortunate that there's a great team that found this work important to look at other agencies to find out where did the funds go that Congress authorized. There were trillions of dollars that were authorized through the Inflation Reduction Act. And so what we found is, is that some come through the Department of Energy. They come through the Environmental Protection Agency. They come through the US Treasury. And so we had to work with those agencies individually to find out which ones actually are available to public housing. And so we now have a website, which is called Bill for the Future, which actually lists out those programs that are now coming through other agencies, even though HUD did not get any for public housing. Housing authorities can go to this site and now look at the Department of Energy, EPA. Treasury has a new program called the Elective Pay, which is the first time that they've ever allowed the nonprofits that do not pay taxes, they have the ability to monetize tax credits now through the U.S. Treasury that can go towards building these projects. First time that Treasury allowed that. And so that is also on their website as well to be able to share with housing authorities.
2: And that leads me to another question. Working for a government agency has to have some specific challenges. It also gives you certain access. You've just mentioned a lot of agencies that you have to go through for better or worse to get these programs, but what are some of the challenges in terms of working with the government and through the government to get these projects off the ground?
3: Well, one is we're we're the federal government, so anytime the government gets involved, there is always apprehension. So, even though the public housing program has been around for 40, 50 years, you know, it has a long history, so part of what we're doing is Rebuilding relationships. And we're communicating with housing authorities on the local level. We are working through industry groups, through housing such as NARO and CLAFA and FADA. These are some industry groups for public housing. We're working through other industries to begin to create the dialogue to share some of the information we share sharing here today, as well as to make these programs more accessible. And of course, one of the biggest challenges is funding. You know, they actually. Housing authorities tell us over and over again, we need funding. And even though these do provide opportunities through the operating fund based on subsidies and the savings that occur as a result of these projects, they need initial capital. They need programs. They need the ability to have some flexibility to be able to actually implement the project. So so as federal government, we're running into those challenges. Fortunately, we've got leadership. And even this administration has been very supportive of the work that we've done so far, and they have been providing resources to help us to move this program forward. Mm -hmm.
2: So you've had support as you're getting these off the ground.
3: Yes, 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 definitely.
2: Certainly makes it easier. Right. So something that was mentioned in uh, the nomination, again, for the Energy Branch Team Award is that 150 public housing authorities are participating in these programs. There are 3,000 PHAs across the country. So there's room for this to grow. What are some of the next steps that you have in mind to expand these programs and access to them?
3: I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) We are doing a number of things. We are building what I call, and I tell the team, we are building capacity. So we have been creating videos and we've now updated a new website for the energy branch that has these resources. We are putting and creating new videos on demand type things to promote it. We are, of course, we do the web conferences. We do web labs. We announce labs for those housing authorities that just want some one-on-one time. We do site visits. We're meeting with some of the industry groups to get with the actual housing authorities to communicate the programs. And we even had, about two years ago, when we first started this effort, and and we'll probably be planning another one, real soon we had what we call Industry Day. And we had utility companies come, we had renewable energy companies come, we had housing authorities, we had some people from the government, we had a number of people from different areas that affect this line of business. And we just basically said, okay, what's the problem? What, what is it that we can do to help move this and tell us what's working well, what is not working well, and let us hear from you. And they were very excited for one. And number two, they provided a lot of feedback that we were able to look at and kind of focus some of our attention with the limited resources that we have. So and it's ongoing. So we still continue to see it grow. And even with this communication of this podcast, I think it's going to help to get the message out there that it will, we're trying to help housing authorities. Mm-hmm.
2: And again, sort of, you know, when you're saying you're convening all of these different parties to get the word out, is that the, I mean, can I say, you know, the power of the federal government, you know, you're getting the word out. We're really serious about that. So they're paying attention.
3: Yes, most definitely. And I was actually on a call last week with uh, some industry folks and they actually said, thank you. They were like, (laughs) (laughs) they said, yes, this, you know, we've heard a couple of your talks. We've heard a couple of your conferences and you're spot on and let us know what we can do to help you. So it is definitely creating some talk and getting people, and we're starting to see more programs. We The last few years, we've seen more rate reduction incentive program requests come through, like 68% increase over the last two years. And now we're starting to see some uptick in some of the other programs as well. And so we just expect that to continue to increase. And
2: well, that's great. So now we talked a lot, you know, being in the federal government, you've got sort of a a series of resources, but also problems. But I think a lot of what you're talking about could translate to public organizations and to CNI, you know, so public and private. So what advice, you know, somebody that's been doing this for a while and doing it successfully now, what advice would you give for your energy and sustainability peers who are looking to get these kind of projects up and running? They may not have the funding issues or opportunities, but what should they be looking at to get started?
3: Well, I mean, number one, I would say that you would need to look at what is needed in your organization in terms of what you're actually using in energy. You need to be able to quantify it. You need to be able to put your fingers on it, see what that is looking like. And then after you have done that, how does that compare to similar industries or companies or organizations such as you? And then thirdly, you must engage the C-suite. You must engage the C-suite over and over again. And several, things over the years working within this kind of work, without the C-suite, it moves very slow or not at all. And the success that we've had has been because the C-suite understands. And I had one actual, I had a CEO tell me, he said, how can you make this sexy? So let me show you some numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and when I showed him the numbers, he said, okay, you got it.
2: That's it. Who knew? Numbers can be sexy. Who knew? <laughs> that is something that does translate to all organizations, getting that buy-in, you know, speaking their language, showing the business case. We hear that over and over, but it that's what it takes. That's a really good piece of advice. So Charles Marshall, representing the Energy Branch of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, congratulations to you and your team on this DEI Impact Award.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The team is very excited and I'm excited with them. So thank you.
2: And now let's hear from Marianella Franklin. One note, you're going to hear a different interviewer voice in this conversation, and that's our producer, Maria Faiella, who conducted several interviews for us live at the event. All right. So
1: Marianella, congrats on being the winner of the Mentorship Award. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your role at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley? Yes. And thank you so much. It's such
0: a great honor. I am just so excited. And I am the chief sustainability officer at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And so for me, sustainability is all about quality of life. And so I'm just super excited about this mentorship award because it just comes natural. You know, it's something that I think having come from a very nurturing and loving family that taught us from a very young age, you know, that inclusivity was important and to make sure we were always inclusive of all our friends and classmates, regardless of all walks of life, it just kind of continues into my professional path. And so as a sustainability officer, I'm there to integrate sustainability into academics and research and engagement, both campus and public engagement, as well as operations. So I have the opportunity to work with a lot of faculty, but also students. And so it's very exciting because it's been I'm not going to lie, it's been a challenging journey, and I'm sure that most sustainability officers would say the same, but it's also extremely rewarding. Having the opportunity to work with people of all walks of life is always just
1: very rewarding. Amazing. I definitely want to ask you about those challenges. But first, can you give us some insight into how energy and sustainability fits into the university's operations? Where does this emphasis on DEI come in?
0: Well, both energy and sustainability, of course, trying to be sustainable in the way we operate as far as energy is very important. And we're always working on projects that have to do with energy efficiencies, always looking as well as resiliency and how we can be better prepared for the natural disasters that we hear about at other locations, but also the ones that we've faced. And so how DEI fits into all this is that when we're Working on projects, we always try to work on these projects in conjunction with faculty and students because they need experience as well. And so we created this incredible program called the Sustainability Fellowship Program that is both for faculty and for students. And so it's just a very exciting time because we have the opportunity through this program to connect our faculty and students to projects. That are specific to sustainability and in some cases specific to energy, specifically when we're talking about students that are within our engineering programs as well as our business programs. They help us. For example, one of the projects is our greenhouse gas emissions inventory. When the university was established in 2015, they brought two older universities within our region to create one large university for the entire four counties. And so at that time, shortly after that, we created this program. And so we hired a consultant to come in and help us with the baseline for our greenhouse gas emissions inventory. But we did it in conjunction with our operating staff, with a faculty member, two faculty member actually, from engineering and business, and with some sustainability fellows, graduate students, who alongside this consulting company worked almost like a practicum on the greenhouse gas emissions inventory. And now it is our faculty and students that help the Office for Sustainability each year. It is a faculty fellow and a student fellow that help us through this process. And so this particular program is important because it is very inclusive and we work with different departments. One of them is our Department of International Admissions. So our Department of International Admissions helps us look at different students from around many countries that come to the university and are seeking assistance, financial assistance. And so this program provides that incentive of financial assistance and at the same time helps us with offering this type of incentive and offering the tool of success, which is sustainability, into their degree programs, into their research. And I know that's a very long answer, but I'm trying to help you understand the connections between energy sustainability and this
1: program that has allowed us to work with students and faculty from around the world. Yeah, we've spoken to multiple people in higher ed, and it sounds like that collaboration between the students and the faculty and getting all parties on board is so important.
0: Yes, especially in higher ed, because these students are graduating with an incredible source of knowledge from their faculty, from their courses, but the experience component of it sometimes is lacking. And that's where we come in with these mentorship programs, because that's what it is. We're mentoring them and helping them work alongside professionals, but also adding the sustainability component to it. So many of our students may have a specific degree program That is connected to the environmental sciences or connected to the social sciences or maybe connected to economic development. And they don't get to work with each other unless these programs bring them together. And then they understand the impact of working with all three systems under one solution, under one problem, and coming up with a sustainable solution. So that's really exciting because you see the light bulb go off the minute they start interacting and having those conversations that we normally have with our consultants, but you see the students now having those type of conversations and the inquiry about how do I make this more sustainable? How can you help me as an economist? How can you help me as an environmental scientist? How can you help me? So they help each other out with each of their different degree programs, each of their research projects, and bring that sustainability component into, you know, a great solution.
1: It's teaching them collaboration at such a important stage as well, that they'll take that into the real world. Let's talk about communication. How are you communicating internally and externally about this project? At this point, are the students finding you? Are you finding the students? How do you get something like this off the ground?
0: It's a little bit of both. And in the beginning, it was more internally. But the minute we started having our receptions at the end of the year, and we were communicating externally with the community and the partners that we had, it started to spread. And so now we get all these applications. And the struggle is we don't have the funding for everyone. So we have to be selective. And that's where it gets kind of challenging for me. I wish I had more money so that we could have more fellows and we could mentor more students because it is very rewarding to hear and see the success of these students. I just had one Who contacted me yesterday, letting me know he was accepted into a master's program, you know, that he was trying to go for. And he was just so excited. And immediately afterwards, I get an email from his mother thanking me. You know, it's just one of those things that you just never know how impactful these programs are until you start to hear back from the students who have already left and are still staying in touch with you and with other people within the program.
1: Those testimonials are going to be the most amazing marketing vehicle you could ever ask for, for sure. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned funding. Let's talk about support. What kind of support did you receive to get the project off the ground and what sort of support are you looking for now? So the
0: support started off within the Division of Research because this is a research intensive program. It is for graduate students who have an interest in integrating sustainability into their research. And we are the mentors who help guide them and their faculty advisors on the true meaning of sustainability as it relates to their project. And so this project was funded by the research division, which I no longer am part of the research division. There's been restructuring and now I am back to facilities and operations. But the funding is now being provided by our new provost. So a lot of changes at the university, but funding is still being provided. I am hoping that in the near future, we can share the success of this program so that we can look for external funding and possibly see if there are companies or corporations who have an interest in also picking up these students as potential interns within their companies or employees, because again, we're talking about students at a graduate level.
1: hmm Mentorship, obviously, it's so important. You're being awarded for it. It can be extremely rewarding and also extremely challenging. Can you tell us about both sides of mentorship, the positives and the negatives that you've experienced? The positive is easy. The minute you start
0: working with students and with anyone, really, because it also involves the faculty who are advisors to the students, we mentor the students on the sustainability side. And when the light bulb goes off and they understand the value, of sustainability and how to do research for the sake of sustainability, it just becomes one of those moments when you realize you finally got to the individual and help them understand just how important they are in this world and how important their research is and how important it is to integrate sustainability, true sustainability data, and whether it's data that is informative on a technical level or whether it's qualitative and quantitative data, which is the terms that we use under research, you know, regardless, they are able to make a case about the value of their work. And this is how researchers then get funded, you know, to further their research. And this is how all these innovative solutions come from this type of research. But sometimes innovative doesn't mean sustainable. So when the student gets that, you see it, you right away, it's in their work, it's in their vocabulary, it's in their presentations. And it is just really rewarding because this is the time that you spend with them is to help them succeed. And I honestly believe sustainability to be one of the key tools of success because Of the misconception most people have that it's about saving the planet when it's actually a formula for solving problems. And so if we could teach our students today how to solve problems so that they are sustainable solutions rather than quick fixes, which is what we've had in the past, then you've helped a student not only succeed in their profession and in their personal life, but that individual is going to help future generations just by doing what they do and sharing their knowledge. So that's the rewarding part. The challenging part, which I mentioned to you earlier, is that this is limited because it does take funding. These are students that require some financial assistance and they do this, you know, so that they can receive some of that. And that's the challenging part is finding a way to expand programs like this in such a way that more students are impacted by these type of mentorships. But it's more rewarding than challenging. I have to say, even though we have challenges, we figure out a way to make sure that we're still helping as many students as we can. Some of them come in and say, I don't care if I don't get this financial assistance. I still want to work with you all. And we try to work with as many as we can.
1: Wow. Amazing. And last question, what advice would you give your peers in higher education as well as in the corporate sector who want to become mentors with their own energy and sustainability work?
0: Oh, wow. That is a very good question. It's a question that requires a big answer, but I'm going to try to condense it. I think the best thing is really being genuine. And if you really care about what's happening in the world today, is to be open and genuine with students and to help them understand that. They have the opportunity to actually address all these things as long as they partner with others. It's not something that's intended to do alone and it requires a village, but it requires us to really take into consideration who we're talking to. There's something I learned at a very young age, and again, it goes back to my childhood and the type of wonderful, loving, nurturing parents I had. My father, a very practical man, always told me, don't waste your energy trying to convince someone who really doesn't care. Finding individuals who are genuine, who really care, are the type of individuals that will work with you, that you can partner with, and that together you can succeed with. Because he said, success is not how much money you make, but it is the relationships you establish along your journey of life. And that is what I share with the students. And so, for others leading in the area of energy and sustainability, I invite them to do the same and just be very genuine and really care about the future and understand that these students are our future. And if we do not give that mentorship to them, if we don't have the time for it, at least you know try to work with one or two if you don't have the time for several, because
1: every little bit counts. Obviously, practice what you preach. You're genuine and so passionate about this program. We at SCD are so excited to continue cheering you on in this endeavor. And congratulations again on winning the DEI award.
0: Thank you so much. It is a great honor. I don't feel I deserve it. I do this because it's something that just comes naturally. Helping our current generation is going to help our future generations. So I think it's important that we all try to do a little bit of that.
2: Absolutely. You're an inspiration. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Jennifer Brunel from NRG, who made these awards possible. I'm very happy to welcome Jennifer Brunel, Vice President of Diversity and Development at NRG Energy. NRG was the sponsor for the DEI Impact Awards at our Net Zero Forum. So, Jennifer, welcome. And I want to start by asking you where does DEI fit into your role at NRG?
4: Firstly, thank you for having us here. It's really exciting. It's been a fabulous conference. In my role as VP of Talent Development and Diversity at NRG, the distinction of making the why of our organization and who we are, who we aspire to be now and into the future actionable. My role is intrinsically linked to our organizational values and in finding ways to develop and grow a culture that reflects those values and to ensure that we're taking the steps to support a truly diverse, equitable and inclusive workplace. So what's really exciting about that is we do this. So every one of our employees knows the vital role that they play in making NRG the organization it is. And that's what makes me so proud to work
2: there. I love that the message gets imparted to the employees because I think that is so important. It's critical for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you determine what makes an effective DEI strategy within that organization?
4: So at NRG, authentic and effective DEI efforts are defined as ones that make a concentrated impact. So whether it's small or large, it doesn't matter. Whether it's cultivating a space for people to share and discuss their perspectives, such as our business resource groups, or reevaluating how we approach the evolution of the employee journey, every element is purposeful so that we can collectively be the organization that we aspire to be. Our efforts are motivated by core beliefs about who we are at NRG. So what does that mean? We are determined to be active participants in our community, and that is vital in terms of how we define ourselves and our culture. We believe that we should make a positive impact on our society and our communities for the better. And we wish to ensure that our employees feel heard, feel valued, and remain an essential part of the actions and good work that we're doing. We work each day to create an environment where people can bring their authentic selves to work. And we respect, recognize, and celebrate that our differences shape us and that diversity makes us stronger. So when did
2: DEI become this core focus for NRG? What motivated that turn?
4: It started around 2019. We elevated inclusion and diversity in the workplace by making it one of our five core values. And this decision was essential to becoming the type of organization that we envisioned, one where people can bring their full self to work and be met with respect, acceptance, understanding, and the celebration of their differences. And we made this decision to formally convey both internally and externally the importance DE&I has in making our corporate culture thrive in supporting business excellence. So, creating this kind of inclusive culture
2: within a workplace, it's a big challenge for any corporate DEI agenda. And Energy is a big company. What steps have you taken at Energy to work towards making this a reality?
4: Yeah, to say it's an undertaking is an understatement. <laughs> One of the key objectives of our DEI programs and efforts is fostering an inclusive and diverse culture. And that is why so much of our DEI efforts are internally facing. And we do this by requiring conduct training for managers providing company-wide unconscious bias training for our employees, offering toolkits that provide practical diversity and inclusion tools that include training, research, studies, having KPIs, key performance indicators, also a critical part. And we created a, and designed an internal DEI webpage so that we can be held accountable for our goals. I think when you talk about de being performative or ensuring that employees are part of the conversation, in the dialogue, you have to be transparent about what you're doing and you have to be able to measure and show the progress that you're making to ensure that you have the employee buy in. We also support our employees through our business resource groups, which provide them a platform to connect with like minded peers and fostering organizational change. <laughs>
2: Well, first of all, those are great steps. I'm very impressed that NRG is doing it. It's also great advice for other companies that are looking to become more effective with their DEI efforts. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for speaking with us today. And again, thanks to NRG's entire team for sponsoring these awards.
4: Thank you. The commitment to DEI allows us to build a unified culture where a strong sense of belonging helps lead us to organizational success. And I just want to say that when you look at the intersectionality of the Goals and accomplishments of this conference and the DEI space, it's critical that they need to start working more closely together so that we can ensure a sustainable future that is equitable and accessible to everyone. So, thank you. Thank you. We're happy that energy is helping us get that word out. So, thanks, Jennifer. Thank you again.
2: Thank you, Charles, Marianella, and Jennifer. We look forward to following your work in this space and we congratulate you again on your leadership. And thanks again to NRG for sponsoring the 2023 DEI Impact Awards. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, like the Net Zero Forum, just click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're really honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition as part of this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make those smart energy decisions.
1: Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.